Welcome to IMD Podcast. I'm your host, Subao Mateban. My guest today is Arturo Brees, Professor of Finance at IMD and the Director of IMD's World Competitiveness Center. We'll be talking about the recently released IMD World Talent Ranking. Welcome, Arturo. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Hello. Thank you. Why does competitiveness matter? Competitiveness is about prosperity and quality of life. So for any country, for any region, but also for any individual, achieving prosperity should be the natural objective of life. And that's why for us is also the natural objective of economic policy. You just published IMD's World Talent Ranking. Switzerland, Denmark and Sweden are ranked as the world's top three talent hubs, namely as countries creating the right environment to develop, attract and retain a skilled workforce. Arturo, you have evaluated 63 countries. What are the factors this assessment is based on? It's very important to realize that talent is one of the major drivers of competitiveness in the long run. That's why we assess the ability of countries to generate talent internally, but also to attract, retain talent. And what is even more important as well, to make sure that the labor force fits the needs of the, of the industrial and services sector. So that's why we look at three factors. The first, the first factor we look at is the quality of the education system. Okay? How much money is invested, uh, how well it performs, in terms of scores, rankings, outcomes. The second factor that we look at is the ability of the country to attract talent in case the talent is not developed at home. At the same time, some countries will lose talent, so to what extent countries also are able to retain the talent that they generate, because very often talent would find other ways. And finally, we look at the match between the economic system and the productive system and the education system. Because very often you can have the best engineers, but then your country may not need engineers. So that much we consider it to be very important because it is the only way how actually talent becomes successful at developing the economy. And looking at the top-ranked country, Switzerland, that seems to be working really well. And what do you think is the reason for that? The success of the Swiss education system is based on several pillars. I think to me, especially because I've been living here for a few years, the success comes from this ability of the Swiss system to really match the needs of the labor market. That is, in Switzerland, the education system is very focused on generating the type of talent that the economy needs. It's not a country that is focused on educating artists or on educating, uh, you know, dentists. Uh, it is very much focused on educating the people that companies in the services sector, in the pharmaceutical sector, in the consumer goods sector, in the innovation industries needs. And those talent, those talents tend to be very much about uh, uh, innovation, technology, math, and, and that much, I think, has been improving over years. So today, if uh, the Swiss economic system needs a particular skill, the education will provide it. And you've mentioned previously yourself that the uh, consistent alignment between talent, demand and supply, one most important factor for Switzerland, I believe, is also the apprenticeship and the training system, right? Yeah, exactly. And what do you think is for the other countries that have been top ranked? Um, is it a similar system to, to Switzerland or do they do it in another way? 
Yes, I think that one of the characteristics of all of these countries that rank on top, which are primarily European countries, is that there is no stigma to the lack of university education. So, generally speaking, you can actually achieve uh, excellence in your skills and talent without going to university. This doesn't mean that those countries like Denmark or Sweden do not have good universities, quite the opposite. But I think people can find other ways. In Switzerland, it's through apprenticeships. Uh, in Germany, something similar as well. But in other countries, like for example in, in Denmark, or in Sweden, or in Norway, even in Singapore, I think what happens is that the education system may stop early, but you can find your opportunities without having a university education. That's a very uh, interesting point, because when you look at the Asian system and the culture, it is there is a certain stigma towards um, non-university educations, right? And do you see any sort of factors when the one of the top-ranked Asian countries is Singapore? Do they have something similar, or do you believe there is a less of a stigma, they have a different education system, and especially kind of the work readiness and the readiness of their talent pool? Yeah, that, that's a very good point. But you see, you see what has been happening in the recent years in countries like Singapore, uh, other parts of Asia like Hong Kong, uh, or even Thailand, is that as um, university education has become longer or at least, you know, um, more technical and with longer curriculum, what has happened is that part of the development of, a, of people and individuals has taken place within companies. Uh, so today what happens in a country like Singapore is that you may graduate from high school and already get a job in which you will be trained in the company for the skills that you need. Which it's may more be very of a management specific. training? Not, or very technical, you know. Very technical. I may okay. need to actually prepare my employees uh, on a particular technology and then I can do it internally. I, know, I don't need to rely on a broader university system. And I think this trend is also coming to Europe, certainly in Switzerland, but other parts of Europe as well. That's really a fascinating trend. Also going back to the... Um, apprenticeship and the employee, the, the training programs, having gone through an apprenticeship program myself and then gone to university, I sort of know what the advantage and disadvantage are from the from the system. And I think 20 years down the line, I still today use the same skills that I was um, I acquired during my apprenticeship, which is amazing to see. What do you think is the um, is the most important factor to kind of fill that skills gap that we see in, in whether it's uh, digital skills or um, also girls and women going into the tech sector. What do you think are the skills that companies or countries should be working on? Mm. Yeah, that's a very good observation because I, I can share exactly what you said, that uh, I feel that what I got during my education years is exactly what I'm using today, 30, 40 years after I went through school. Uh, today, in the 21st century, this is changing. And what you learn at school or at university becomes obsolete in a very short period of time. And I think that's why now we talk about continuous education, but what this means primarily is that part of the training has to take place within organizations. And which is even more interesting to me is not that companies should prepare their employees on the skills that the company needs. But because of the transformation of the labor market that is coming, in order to keep my employees not only satisfied, but also 
in their job, I need to make sure that I prepare them for skills that they will need somewhere else, which I think requires what I will call in, in my recent book flexibility, to be flexible. That is, companies need to realize that if I am selling, a, you know, technology product, maybe I need to also train my employees on marketing skills, which is not what they need in the current job, but they will need in a new job or task that they will perform. So this idea of uh, continuous education is becoming broader and broader. Absolutely, the lifelong learning, but also in a company context, not only on an individual context. And what has been the trend or what do you see as a, as a change in the past couple of years, how, how countries are adapting to that? Is there a change and are they being agile or are, are countries struggling with that? Hmm. You observe something that is interesting in our rankings and this happened, for example, in continental Europe, not necessarily in the countries that rank on the top that we have seen like Switzerland or Denmark, but in, but in countries like France or Italy or Germany or Spain, that as the education system, because of historical reasons, is of a very high quality, I think that companies delegate that a lot on the education system. That is, I don't, I don't prepare my employees. You see that when you look at the ranking of business education, we have a, 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 an indicator that looks at the quality of the management education of executives. And you see that it's very low, relatively low, in countries like Germany and France, because again, they rely on the education system. And I think that's a mistake, because they say, well, you know, we have good engineers, why should I bother? Once I hire an engineer, I know that she will perform extremely well in the job. I think that's what you don't see in the most emerging economies, Southeast Asia, for example, again, Thailand or Singapore. In these countries, they realize that it is more important to take an engineer, for instance, but then to educate her on new skills and different skills. And, and that's, that's also quite interesting because the best rankings on the management education the indicator, it is in these countries, smaller countries, not necessarily the bigger countries, but you could expect that they have the best business schools, let's say. That's fascinating. So in some ways, there's a disconnect between the education system and how the talents or the talent poor is nourished or nurtured, right? And uh, looking at the current ranking, what other trends do you see in terms of um, some of the factors you've identified is kind of the strong investment in the education system and also the quality of life? And that goes without saying, you know, when you when we look at some of the top ranked countries. But what other factors do you think um, countries should pay attention to when they develop their, you know, in the education system that they can create more of a connection between the talent pool inside their countries or even exporting talent? I think there is a lot of work that has been done in the last years to explain what makes education systems successful. And what we have observed, I think very much in line with other studies, is that there are three factors that guarantee the success of a system. Number one is investment in education. But investment in education has to be investment per student. I mean, now I'm taking the view of the statistician. Ah, okay. Individual there, investment of Individual. The student, For right. example, the United States invests 7% of their GDP in education. It is a lot. Uh, compared to, for example, Singapore. Singapore only invests 4% of its GDP in education. So why is the difference between the two talent rankings? Because Singapore ranks much, much higher. Well, and the answer is that the investment per student in Singapore is way higher than the investment uh, in the US. 
And this is because, number one, there are fewer students in, in Singapore, but second, because a lot of the investment that is done in the US tries to, to support the system, but not the individual student. Okay? And that's the number one factor, investment in education per student and not investment to GDP. And I say that because, for example, the way we look at investment in Europe, the way how the European Commission looks at investment, uh, education investment statistics is always as a percent of GDP. And many politicians will stress that magnitude, which could, for me is the, is the wrong one. The, the second factor, so I talk about the first one, the second factor in the success of an education system is a, a curriculum based on excellence. That is, on promoting excellence at the expense of mediocrity or mediocrity and an equalization of students. I think that one of the mistakes that we have made in Europe over the last years is this idea that education should be a factor to preserve the income equality of the population. And this has been translated into saying all students should perform in the same way. The, the result of that is that we have lower standards. Okay. So we've developed curriculum based on this, yes. just just for, mm-hmm. ah, that's an interesting way mm-hmm. to look at it, uh, that it, it matters how an individual student is performing and the curriculum yes. should be based on that. Yes. But how about uh, the curriculum addresses also the market needs, mm-hmm. how it's done to some extent in Switzerland? Yes, well, for that, you need a constant collaboration between the public and the private sector. For, for that, you need that, that politicians and those who design the education system listen to the to the corporate world to improve their curriculum. Because today, for example, if we're in a technological revolution and then we are talking about artificial intelligence and big data, we need to bring coding, programming, and computing skills into our classroom. Absolutely, much and earlier that, than today. Yeah. So that, that requires basically, again, that, that politicians listen to the private sector. So we have, we have observed in our ranking that, in fact, to this idea of this factor, this interesting factor is that when when you look at the successful systems, Singapore, Hong Kong, Switzerland, Denmark, they're all systems that be, are based on excellence. They're they are discriminatory in a positive way in which you take the best students and you make sure that they excel, supporting the, the other students, you know, making sure that they have a, a prosperous future. Okay. What you said earlier about the apprentice system is not that an apprentice, an apprentice is a worse student. It's just someone with different skills. Okay, so in essence, and more focused his skills. Voila, and everybody becomes excellent in in his or her own way. That's very important. And then very fast also, the the, the third factor is a focus on educators. That is, uh, when when teacher salaries, uh, teacher skills, the size of the classroom are promoted, then you have a successful education system. And this again is shared among the top 10 in our rankings. From the number 10, that is Singapore, to the number one, that is Switzerland. In all these countries, you have a focus on teachers as a, as a primary force in changing the education system. If you, if you read or you see what's happening in the Nordic countries, that is something that everybody talks about. In countries like Finland or Norway, being a teacher brings a, it's a, an amazing improvement in social reputation. It's like a, a very high quality job. It's, the, it's, a, it's a reserve for the most uh, talented people. And I think this, of course, is related to salaries. They are also getting, pay, getting paid a lot. 
and that's very good for the education system. Teachers have to be seen as a major force in the transformation of a country. I completely agree with you. Uh, even looking back our own upbringing, I think teachers had probably the most impact on our long-term long-term perspective on everything, right? Looking at some of the, um, it seems to be the education systems completely in the focus. You know, it's a strong investment in the education system and also kind of being being adaptable and agile at the same time. And I completely agree with your perspective on having that exchange between public and private. That also goes back to what you've always been mentioning, the bigger picture, looking at the macroeconomics of things. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. So the the, the world is becoming open. So open means that uh, capital is movable, companies are movable, but most importantly, talent is movable. So we have talked a lot about education systems, but then it seems to be the case that as talent moves, talent is trying to find its best target Ecosystem. country. And, and, and that requires also countries to focus on not only attracting talent, but also on retaining their own talent. And, and that's where the macro picture becomes relevant. That's the major challenge in some of the countries outside of Europe, right? Retaining their own talent. Yes. India is a good example. Yeah. We have actually analyzed that. We have like a map of talent. Uh, and then you have countries that are net importers of talent. Switzerland is a good example. But then you have countries that are net exporters of talent or in many cases just exporters of talent. To some extent, India, but also countries like uh, Brazil, or many countries in Eastern Europe, they are generating amazing talent, but then they are exporting it. And that's a big problem, because when you lose your talent, you lose your future. And we need to also, from our point of view, from the point of view of the IMD World Competitiveness Center, we need to give recommendations to those countries on how to retain the talent in the best possible way. Is that perhaps also related to some of the investments they're doing when it comes to re retaining talent or even the education system? Because looking at the current uh, ranking, Colombia and Brazil, some of the countries you've mentioned, have ranked quite low. And what are the other indicators? Yes, it's, it's interesting because we are conducting a research study with some of my colleagues here at IMD in order to assess the factors that drive talent mobility, especially at the higher level. Okay? The question is, why do executives move? And what we find is uh, contrary to... Is what it only executives, but also we, we only look, executives? We look, at, we look at executives for one reason. What, what you, if you look at the, the average population, we know naturally that people move looking for a better quality of life and better income. So salaries determine mo mobility. That's obvious. Okay? So someone will move to Switzerland because salaries are higher here. And then related to that is taxes. Obviously, in countries with better fiscal rules, then you, you, you move. Okay? That's the case of, let's say, Portugal or the United Arab Emirates, okay? that they have a much more favorable taxation. But when it comes to executives, we thought, well, maybe there are other factors. And indeed, we find that. We find that um, even taking into account different fiscal rules or different salary levels, the major factor driving the mobility of, of executives is quality of life. Quality of life besides salary. So, for example, safety, uh, pollution, uh, you know, uh, livability of cities, okay? technology in the cities, uh, availability of schools. 
So the education system that actually expands the the horizon of education policies because if you want to attract talent, you need to improve quality of life. I'll tell you one example that you know may not be politically correct, but uh, you know when you look at Finland, for example, Finland is an amazing country when it comes to education system, but Finland does not attract talent. Okay, and I remember I had a, an event in Finland recently where I was asked this question. He said, "How can Finland?" attract more talent and I said unfortunately you know there's not much that you can do because if you think about quality of life it is true that for the average Finnish person quality of life may be high but the question is how do executives and foreigners would see quality of life in Finland and this is again urban infrastructure but also weather absolutely you know, <laughs> uh, language <laughs> yeah. language uh, difficulty how 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 able you are to learn the local language and these things make a country more livable and, and that we find it interesting because in many cases you know attracting talent is not left just to policy there are some things that you can do okay colombia has certainly made a big progress at improving safety and that results in m- m- more talent attraction but you know it is very much restricted also to the other factors in the macroeconomy and in particular again you know the average gdp enhance the quality of the urban infrastructure and so on and so forth okay so when it comes to talent attraction especially at the executive level there is not a lot that countries can do very often but could they invest in branding for instance that's one topic that keeps coming up in terms of marketing of the country i think uh, not many countries that are leading the ranking these days are actually perfect countries but they might have another strategy for instance UAE or even even Singapore mm, yes it is, this is very interesting because you know it, it looks like a shallow recommendation to a country it's like you should you <laughs> invest should, in marketing yeah, you should tell yourself better <laughs> but in one of our earlier studies that we did on competitiveness we found that the best predictor of the long-term competitiveness of the country is the image of the country abroad and the image of the country abroad determines foreign investment attractiveness of capital also the attitude of domestic executives you know because they see that they are respected abroad and then ultimately talent attraction okay so how do you improve the image of the country abroad obviously there are fundamentals that make uh, your country look better okay at the end of the day switzerland has a very good image because of its companies and its product But and political is, neutrality. Uh, so, so political institutions, but there's also a lot that can be done, as you say, from the pure marketing point of view. And if you look at, and we have actually analyzed the case of South Africa, of uh, of East Timor, just to mention a, a very small country. In terms of peace building, uh, they've done. Yeah. Brazil, uh, of course, uh, Thailand, Peru. These are all countries that have engage themselves into massive campaigns of selling the country abroad that have been very successful. Uh, because again, that results in more investment coming to the country. So I always say it's a positive MPV investment to invest in branding. And and not surprisingly, most countries in the world are doing that. And fascinating enough, it's the same approach a company would take, you know, in terms of branding and marketing of a, of a country. Everything goes well together of how successful or how well positioned the companies inside the country are. Yes, yeah, and it has to go in parallel, you know. Yeah. It's what we call, in our center, we call the country ceiling. In essence, mm-hmm. there is a certain reputation that as a company can reach, 
that it's never better than your country. So if your country is considered to be unsafe, polluted, not competitive, corrupted, then as a company, you're identified as national of that particular country, there's not much more that you can do. So in order to improve the competitiveness of companies, countries also need to invest in the competitiveness of the nation and then means on the image of the country abroad. Right. Because that raises the bar for the image and of the country. Coming back to the, your earlier point about private sector and public sector working together hand in hand, right? One other thing I wanted to raise, especially talking about talent pool, an untapped huge resource or source of talent is, of course, women. What are the countries doing and who is actually leading in that mm. in that sense? Well, not surprisingly, the countries that are doing best in promoting women in the labor market are mostly Northern European. And they have done so first through, a, I think, a, a historical culture of gender parity, but second through policies that have imposed quotas in on boards, quotas in political institutions, and even, you know, a formal percentages of executives in companies okay, that have been promoted. Um, and this is, you know, there are other countries in Europe following suit on that. What we find also interestingly is that if you look at participation of women in the labor market, the, the region that dominates by and large is Southeast Asia. That's so, amazing. Look, again, Indonesia uh, is one of the countries with the larger participation of women in the, in the labor force. Uh, Malaysia, uh, Thailand, where is also very visible. And I think there are several factors involved there. One is cultural, which I think that unlike uh, what has been happening in Europe, you know, women have incorporated into the labor market much earlier. Uh, and second, I think, is economic need. I think in the average family, you know, you need to have several income providers, and that results in both men and women working equally. Okay? When you look also at the proportion of women in top executive positions, then actually it is much higher there than it is in Europe, mm -hmm. for example. It's more of a need as well. And that's a, I, I think it's a, a very interesting cultural factor because when you look at Switzerland, the quality of life, what you describe as one of the essential parts to describe, you know, how, how to attract or um, uh, retain talent, that particular factor kind of is a downside for women's empowerment. Yes, exactly. And that comes from the fact that women have incorporated into the labor force in, in Switzerland very late. And that was driven primarily by cultural forces. The fact that the education system was not, uh, was not supportive. The fact, again, that you know, it was traditional to have one income provider in the family. And, and that's definitely a drag. Okay. It's interesting to see, if you look at the United Nations statistics, the country in the world with the highest number of female executives is the Dominican Republic. Would you say that's very weird? Well, obviously, The, the reason is that in the Dominican Republic there are no men. That is, they have they, they leave the country. It's a massive exporter of talent, and then those who need to support the companies at home, then are the ones who who stay. And typically, it's the women who stays in the country, and then they have climbed to top executive position in the country, like to, to, relative to men. So very often there are cultural reasons, like in Europe. There are also economic reasons, like in Dominican Republic or in Indonesia. That, that generate this, this type of gender parity. 
I think it's, def- it's extremely important in the 21st century that we empower also women in our, in our labor market because there's an amazing untapped talent you know, that actually prevents the, the country from being more competitive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And also when we're moving more in the direction of uh, kind of machine learning, AI and technology, we also need women to create technology that, you know, that we can avoid kind of uh, inequalities in the kind of products we create as well. Right. Uh, Arturo, this is very, very interesting in terms of the world uh, competitiveness center. The work you do is not only coming out with um, with the different rankings. You've come out with, um, uh, with the city index, and a couple of works are going on. As part of your work, what are the other things that are you doing with countries? And you were mentioning you're advising them. What are the suggestions you're making? What is your, usually your role in this? Mm-hmm. Well, our our work involves. Understanding the forces of competitiveness and then translating that into policies, policies that can, you know, operate at the very detailed, very detailed aspect of the economy. And in that regard, you know, having working on ca- countries in order to improve uh, uh, foreign direct investment into the country, uh, to increase the, the the quality of the education system. Uh, more recently, we do a lot of work on digital competitiveness. That is how countries can facilitate the digital transformation of companies. Uh, and as you have mentioned, we have also done in the last year uh, a lot of work and we have completed the big project on assessing the importance of cities and the way how technology improves prosperity of, uh, of people, what we call smartness or smart cities. Okay. Um, I think that that's where we are moving understanding that um, countries are becoming less important as economic units. Countries are certainly very important as political units and regulatory units. But at the economic level, today you cannot talk about China as a homogeneous country. You cannot talk about the United States. You cannot even talk about Switzerland as a homogeneous country. You need to talk about cities. And I think our future work will go by analyzing the importance of cities and how cities shape their own future through technology, through infrastructure, through economic policies. Is this for primary cities, but also secondary cities in a country? Yes. Very often, secondary cities tend to be more important. If you think about one, that's a very important, interesting aspect of, of competitiveness. If you look at the countries that are most competitive in those countries, the most important economic city is not necessarily the capital city. Right. Okay. So Looking at Switzerland. <laughs> voila. Switzerland, the United States, yes. when you have California, uh, or for example, when you look at China and Shanghai or Shenzhen uh, against, uh, against Beijing. So that's also a very interesting factor that distinguishes cities. If you promote the capital, this is Paris, or this is Rome, or Madrid, if you promote the, the, the country's capital, then you are centralizing the economy. And then you are basically leaving a lot of, a lot of cities, cities behind. Yeah. Arturo, as a closing statement or um, a question, you're not only the director of the World Competitiveness Center at IMD, you're also a professor. You teach and you lead different programs. What is, from your personal experience, a skill that you find should be nurtured more in a leader? I, I love that question because, you know, one of the, one of the 
my miseries as a business school professor, especially in an institution like IMD, that develops leaders is that very often we focus too much on individual characteristics of leaders and then our programs are very much devoted to developing those skills. You know, the ability to manage a team, the ability to, to be introspective and reflect about yourself, the, the ability to get to know yourself better and, and so on. But one of the fundamental skills that I think we disregard very often is the ability to look at the bigger picture. In my opinion, the most inspiring and successful leaders are those who are able to grasp the reality. Those who are able to talk about politics in uh, Bolivia as well as the latest technology development in, in China. And that mindset, which I don't want to call global mindset because it's a very much It's a very misused term. It's a buzzword, but, yeah. But what I, what I would call the ability to look at the broader picture is, in fact, I think, a major driver of, uh, of the success of companies. So the successful companies are not necessarily the ones that have the better leaders in the sense that they lead their teams better. Actually, our evidence shows that the better leaders, the better companies, are those where the senior executives understand the context much better. And then they know how to navigate the regulatory environment, the social environment, much better. If you are able to, to educate a leader who operates in Brazil as well as she operates in Japan, then that's a successful executive. That's a brilliant point because that comes back to the competitiveness as well. If you have great leaders like that who are able to look at the bigger picture, um, the country and the companies can be actually more be more competitive. Having said that, thank you so much, um, Professor Arturo Brice. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Well, that's all for today's episode of IMD Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Professor Brice for joining me today and for sharing his insights on the recently released IMD World Talent Ranking. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify so you never miss an episode. To learn more about IMD, visit imd.org.